the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. This is Selwyn Whitehead. I'm a California Bar Minute Attorney, and I'm also a bankruptcy law certified specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you before, in addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I'm both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance, along with the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. However, I also practice some related fields in my overall consumer and small business financial practice, including debt, wealth management, estates and trust, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference point, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I grew up and I guess I always will be a military brat at heart, and I helped create another one with my former spouse who was also in the military, as such, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizens, soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system. As such, uh, I uh, really um, consider it a point of pride to serve veterans uh, of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I love to talk about my grandmothers who were my sweeties uh, because I actually got to spend a lot of time with them and became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmother, both of whom survived the great four economic challenges of the last century. That is to say, they found a way to not only survive, but thrive the, in the Great Depression and in the privations of World War II, along with the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through and through our society today. And because these women helped raise me and they loved me and they shared with me great stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, it is out of my great love and respect for these 
these women who were always with me in spirit, along with my dad, urging me on to do the right thing. And when the situation is right, I am sometimes at least able to attempt to vindicate the rights of all women, but especially senior women and those who are disabled of any gender who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more, the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of adult and elder financial abuse that's running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more probably than not these days, the insufficient amount, even if you have some insufficient amount thereof, and your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your family's or your business's financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets and or your debt. So continuing our discussion of the debt ceiling and the implications is if we, the United States government, breach it, and I'm doing this with the goal of arming us all with the knowledge we need to instruct our congressperson and or senators on the fallacy of logic expressed by some members of Congress in their misguided attempts to conflate the need to lift the debt ceiling, which looks backwards or retrospectively at paying the bills for the goods, services, bond payments, and other expenses we've already incurred that a previous session of Congress has, or sessions of Congress, have already approved. Now, uh, they're conflating that backwards-looking aspect with our annual taxing and spending process, also known as our annual budgeting process, that looks forward and is prospective in nature, reflecting our current and ongoing public policy priorities. And I hope to help do this by iterating some salient facts about our country's long-term history with debt and why this latter-day newfound aversion to debt uh, funding uh, by one of the primary parties in our political process or regime we have here in the United States, and, and that all this pearl-clutching and kabuki theater-based analysis of the need to deal with our debt is baseless, and it turns out to be just basic political BS. Now, I say this because the, as a fact of the matter that are clear and in plain sight, 
Number one, our country was born in debt. Number two, the powers to and the process for how we produce revenue and spend it, it once it's raised is articulated in Article 1, Section 7 and 8 of our United States Constitution. Number three, we have borrowing limits as a convenience to Congress itself and to the executive branch to provide it with the flexibility it needs to pay our ongoing legal obligations, the obligations that are legally tied to things that we've already acquired. And fourth and most importantly, Defaulting on our debt obligations will harm us as individual citizens and business owners, and it will diminish our standing in the world. Now, again, number one, our country was born in debt. Specifically, during the American Revolution, the Continental Congress, under the Articles of of Confederation, amassed huge war debts, owed to wealthy individuals and foreign governments, including France, the Netherlands, and Spain. But because at the time we were basically a loose assemblage of 13 equal sovereign states, we lacked the ability to internally mandate the funding for the repayment of these outstanding obligations through taxation of our populace or the imposition of of duties on imports into our country simply because we had no centralized taxing authority. As such, each state controlled their individual pocketbooks, and it was like herding cats to get them to agree to anything, especially about money. Then, under the United States Constitution of 1789, our new federal government enjoyed increased authority to manage our finances and to raise revenue through our self-imposed and regulated centralized taxing authority, the Treasury. As such, the responsibility for managing debt fell to Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton. Now, Hamilton placed the United States finances on on much firmer ground, allowing our government to negotiate new loans with these foreign entities at lower interest rates and uh, and those individuals and foreign governments, they decided that they would take more risks and continue to invest in our country. In addition, we began to make regular payments to deal with our debt, especially to, the, to France. And starting in 1790, we also provided emergency advances to France to assist it in addressing its 1791 slave revolt that generally turned uh, Haiti uh, into an independent country. Now, although under the more perfect union forged under the Constitution, it allowed us to be able to resume to pay our debts, our total federal expenditures and revenues were, you know, many just as they are today. And so then Secretary Hamilton, just like the secretaries of Treasury that came after him up and to including our current secretary, Janet Yellen, today, 
We have sought and continue to seek loans from the worldwide capital markets to bridge the funding gaps that we need to pay our obligations, including the interest payments required to obtain these loans. In Hamilton's time, he sought additional loans from the Dutch capital markets. In our improved financial situation and our demonstrated ability to timely pay our debt obligations made these additional loans much easier to obtain. And as such, we have continued to be able to tap into uh, the debt, the worldwide capital markets uh, that we play a part in being both producers of, of, of loans that other countries buy into to pay our debt and also, you know, selling our debt to increase our ability to deal with our ongoing needs. So when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion on the debt ceiling and the implications if we breach it. Now, before the break, we talked about our first um, Secretary of Treasury, um, Alexander Hamilton. In his time, he sought, after we were able to form a more perfect union and become the United States under the Constitution, he sought additional loans from uh, Dutch capital markets and our improved financial situation and our demonstrated ability to timely repay our debt obligations made these loans easier to obtain. These private loans from Dutch bankers also helped pay off the loans that we owed to the Spanish government, as well as pay back the missed salaries owed to our foreign officers and the United States diplomatic expenses we incurred in Europe where we set up embassies, the embassies we needed to increase our statute on the world stage and have us be known as a bona fide world power. However, subsequently in the modern era, we and the rest of the world have realized the value of buying, selling, and holding, and profiting off of each other's debt obligation, such that, according to Investopedia, as of May 2022, the U.S. owes foreign governments about $7.4 trillion, including to the top five governments, Japan, China, the United Kingdom, Belgium, and Luxembourg. But guess what? The rest of the world owes us much, much more to the tune of nearly $10 trillion. This because the nature of debt and investment form reciprocal relationships. Debt is often created as a natural part of doing international business. So international debt transfers aren't always the big, bad, ugly boogeyman some uninformed or unsophisticated or in our current situation manipulative people want them to be made out to be, to scare us. But guess what country owes the largest or owns the largest amount of U.S. government debt? Guess what country? The United States of America. 
is owed some $6.2 trillion, and guess who's on the list of creditors? The American public. People like you and me who own U.S. savings bonds and certificates of deposit and treasury bills that are sold by our government and are in our safety deposit box or in our IRAs or in our other brokerage accounts. Then there are our state and local governments who likewise invest in our national government, along with just about every bank and insurance company and public and private pension funds who have placed at least some or all of their depositors' funds in safe, short-term investments in the United States of America. So why would we as individual Americans, along with our state and local governments and American businesses and foreign individuals and governments, continue to loan money to the United States when we carry huge deficits each and every year? It's because we have a constitutionally mandated vested interest in not defaulting on our debt obligations to anyone, including ourselves, according to the 14th Amendment. And if we are so stupid as to allow a default, our credit rating would drop and our very attractive investment market that is tied to the rest of the world would dry up and not only leave us without any ability to obtain international or domestic credit. But riddle me this, Batman, just how many individuals or governments whose debt we hold will continue to make bond interest payments to us if we stiff them again? We own their debt and they're obligated to pay us interest payments. And if we stiff them, how many payments do you think they'll make to us? So I urge you to read more about our initial forays into international capital markets to fund our government and pay our bills, both under the Articles of Confederation and the United States Constitution by going to the Office of the Historian of the Department of State, located at history.state.gov forward slash milestone. It's very interesting to read about the history of our government. Okay, so let's continue on. Uh, We talked at great lengths last week about the second question, and we went over how we raise and uh, spend funds looking at Article 1, Section 7 and 8 of the Constitution. So we're going to go on to step number three, and that in turn, namely, we have borrowing limits as a convenience to Congress and to allow our executive branch some flexibility in paying our legal debt obligations. And four, we're going to talk about, most importantly, defaulting on our debt obligations will harm us as individuals and our standing in the world, which I think you already might have a clue as to what that is. So why do we have debt limits in the first place? Well, we have borrowing limits as a convenience to Congress. Again, according to the economic research website, The Conversation, that's located at theconversation.com, before 1917, Congress would authorize the government to borrow a fixed sum of money for a specific term. When the loan were repaid, the government could borrow again without asking Congress for approval. It would just roll over. 
The second Liberty Bond Act of 1917 created this debt ceiling and changed it and allowed the continual rollover of debts without having to have congressional approval each time. And the reason why they did that is we were in the midst of World War I, and then President Woodrow Wilson needed to have ready access to funds so he could prosecute the war. And many times Congress was not in session. So they initially gave him a limit of $11.5 billion. And over the course of history and time, we have continually raised the debt limit. Again, the money is there for the executive branch to pay our bills and make certain investments without having to constantly go back to Congress. Now, remember, Congress has already authorized the payment. The, the part we had we had to go back for was to get specific allocation. So this idea of having a large charge card came into play as a result of trying to prosecute World War One. Now, the fourth area, the what will happen if we default, I say, and many agree with me or I agree with them because they've been all around a lot longer than I have, that it's going to harm us as individuals and our standing in the world. Again, we are the ones, we American citizens have the largest stake in our government through our purchase of certificates of deposits, treasuries and United States savings bonds. So um, we and if we don't uh, raise uh, the debt limit, in addition to not paying our being able to pay our debts, uh, Social Security payments won't go out. Our troops and federal civil employees will not be paid. Veterans could see their compensation or pension payments lapse, and millions of Americans on food assistance and other support will stop. Okay, this is on top of making us a pariah to the rest of the world. Again, our economic um, uh, monetary funds are intertwined with the rest of the world. Okay, so what could we do about the debt limit? Some say, you know, the Treasury could just create this uh, huge uh, 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 coin and and determine that it <laughs> is enough to uh, pay for us to pay off our debts based on that coinage. But many consider that to be a gimmick. Others believe that constitutionally, uh, if a breach is allowed. That would have to be challenged because the 14th Amendment states that the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law shall not be questioned. So I guess some of us would have to sue the Republican Congress for doing such by not allowing the debt ceiling to go through. That also is going to take time and energy. Finally, there's a po possibility of a procedure called the discharge motion in Congress to use that as uh, the means by which to lift the debt ceiling. Such a maneuver would remove the need for the approval of the House committees that are in charge with um, uh, the funding of the United States and the Speaker of the House. It's a way to get a, an item on the floor of Congress without having to go through these 
these these gating process through committees and to the speaker and go directly to the floor of the House and get the necessary 100 and, uh, 218 votes. And many believe that if it went to the floor, there would be enough moderate Republicans that would join with the Democrats to lift the debt ceiling. So what can we as individuals do about this? I urge us all to contact our senators and our congressional representatives. And if and you can do that by going to the website, congress.gov forward slash member forward slash find your member, put in your address and both your uh, senators and your congressperson will pop up and there will be a link for where you can get in touch with them. And I urge you can call them or you can send them an email or a message via the link. I suggest that you send them some document urging them to lift the debt limits and if applicable, tell them a bit about how it impacts you personally. For example, if you're on social security and you need your social security to survive. So we're going to leave it there for now. But as always in closing here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including the laws used by our government to keep us in good economic stead here and around the world. So till next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.